Welcome to the Hills. All of you watching online, all of you in person at Northwestern Hills, at Keller Campus, and at West Fort Worth. We're in a season we call Harvest. If you're new to our church, uh, on the second Sunday of November, uh, our goal is to raise over $2.7 million. And these monies uh, fund all of our global mission efforts, uh, all of our national church plants, and all of the evangelistic efforts we do in our city. And we are asking for nations and generations. So we're in 40 days of prayer. I ask you to join us. We're giving you prayer prompts every day on our YouTube channel. Today is day 15. We're praying for Dash Network. Jeremy Glover is leading us in that moment. I would invite even those of you that are online to join us, even if you may not be a member of our church, our goals are not to bless our church. Our goals are to bless the kingdom all over the world. And so join us in these prayers. We're asking for nations and generations. And of course, one of our goals is to raise up 25 families to foster and 100 people to bless fostering families. And we have some agencies at every campus that work with foster children and needy children. Go by and say hi to them. Even if you're not thinking about fostering, go by and say a prayer with them. Encourage them. These are some of God's best people. What I'm doing in this series called A Faith Worth Remembering is asking us to look back at some great stories of faith in Scripture as we look ahead to what God is going to use us to do as people of faith. So open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. I'll start with the story of a man walking in the park. He sees an older man who's a friend sitting on a bench and sobbing. So he goes to sit down by his friend and says, what's the matter? And the older man said, well, I just left the doctor and she said, I'm going to have to take these pills for the rest of my life. And the first guy said, well, that's not so bad. A lot of us have to take pills. And the old man said, yeah, but she only gave me 10 pills. <laughs> so here's the point. It's hard to face the future without hope. And it's impossible to have hope without God. That is the viewpoint of a biblical worldview. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 12 says, In those days you were living apart from Christ. You lived in this world without God and without hope. So if you have a biblical worldview, you believe if you don't have a God in your life, you have no hope for the future. Actually, you know, that's also a secular viewpoint. That if you think faith is worthless, you're also admitting that ultimately life is pointless. There was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago about talking to kids about death. We live in a world with uh, war, with pandemics. And what was interesting about the article was the people asking the question were atheists, secular worldview. What do I say to my child about death if I don't believe in God? And uh, the interesting response of a psychoanalyst, Erica Cosmore, was, lie to them. Seriously. She said, maybe as adults, we can accept the reality that we're just going back to dust and our life really doesn't matter. Kids can't handle that. Lie to them. Tell them there's a heaven. Tell them they're going to see their loved ones again. I appreciate the intellectual honesty, but I don't think what the next generation needs is for us to lie to them. I think what they need is for us to tell them stories of people that lived with God, and because they lived with God, they lived with hope. And there's no better place to start than the start of the Bible. 
with the four great figures of the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So we're working through Hebrews chapter 11, and now we're in verse 17 through 22. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise even the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Now, what all of these stories have in common is they are talking about the very end of these four men's lives. How all of them are exercising their faith confidently as they look ahead. Remember, the chapter started, verse 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for. That people of faith let then impact now. Or, or to put it another way, and here's the big idea of the whole sermon, that faith worth remembering lives in the future tense. And here's what I mean by that. To believe God is to allow what you think he will do someday to impact what you do this day. Did you hear that? To believe God is to allow what you think he will do someday to impact what you do this day. There's a number of texts in the New Testament that talk about the future and how God is going to bring all of history to its uh, prophetic and final end. And every time one of those passages is read, it is followed by a text about ethic. We live like we live now because we believe what we believe about then. I'll give you an example. In 2 Peter 3, Peter is writing saying, God is going to judge evil in the world. He proved that with the Noah story. He flooded the whole world with water in judgment. He's going to do it again with fire. Now, notice what he says right after that. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Let then impact now. Live in the future tense. Scholars call this the eschatological viewpoint, which just means think about the end. Think about what's coming. You say, I don't know how to do that. Yes, you do. You did in high school and college. Remember when your teacher said, you've got a term paper due and you waited to the very last night to do it. Why? Because you didn't want to write a term paper a week early and have Jesus come back and you've got a wasted term paper, right? <laughs> think about it. All the time we think about the future we want and we make decisions today for that future we want. And so, we allow what's coming to shape who we are becoming. 
For believers, the future is now. And so these four great heroes of faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, are going to teach us how to live in the future tense. And here's the first thing we teach us, that you frame your life around God's promises. You see, the writer said that Abraham was a man who had embraced the promises. So what is promise? Promise is God's will and power to create a new future out of a barren past. Promise is God saying the way it is, is not how it has to stay. That's promise. What is faith? Faith is my capacity and will to embrace that promise of an announced future with so much passion, I move in its direction. Promise is God saying, this is how it's going to be. Faith is my saying, then I'm walking in the direction of what's coming. That's what Abraham did. Ever since God called a 75-year-old idol-worshiping Chaldean and said, I'm going to give you a son from whom all nations will be blessed. And from that point forward, Abraham framed his life around that promise and doing so meant making a lot of sacrifices. He sacrificed his homeland. He sacrificed his extended family. He sacrificed ever having a permanent place to dwell. But one day the promise is fulfilled and he's got a boy. He's a hundred year old man. He's got a boy and that boy grows up. And then one day God says, offer that boy on an altar to me. What? I have made sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for this promise. And now you tell me to sacrifice the promise? And there's no record that God ever explained why. So Abraham had, Abraham had to wonder how what God wanted to do to Isaac could reconcile with what God wanted to do through Isaac. How could God ask for the promise and still keep the promise? But even if he wondered how, he did not wonder if. Now, I'm going to show you what I think is one of the most incredible verses in the whole Bible. So Abraham and Isaac with some servants are walking to the mountain where God told him to sacrifice his son. And it says in Genesis 22, verse 5, that he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. And then, look, we will come back to you. Two of us are going up the mountain. Two of us are coming down. This is not unconscious prophecy. This is unwavering faith. So they went up that mountain to worship. And I know what song they were singing. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper. That is who you are. His confidence was not in Isaac. His confidence was in I am. And notice what the Hebrew writer said. It's amazing. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. What? See, you've read the Bible. You know the end of the story. You've read lots of stories in the Bible of people getting raised from the dead. Abraham didn't have a Bible. There is no record to this point that anyone has ever been raised from the dead. He's got a dilemma. God made a promise. God wants the promise back. And so he reasoned, I don't get it. 
But after I slay this boy, he's going to come back to life. Now that's faith. Not in Isaac, in I am. You see, Abraham reasoned that resurrection was more compatible with the character of God than contradiction. After all, Isaac was the fruit of a dead womb. He's already seen that God can take things that are dead and make them alive again. And so he kept his conviction that every promise of God would be kept. He framed his life around his confidence in what he hoped for. Then impacted now. And that's how God wants you and me to live. Let me give you a very real example in my life. Can I take off my pastor hat for just a minute and admit I'm just a person too? Now, my wife and I, we've always tried to be generous people. We've always tithed to our church. Beyond that, we give to other Christ-centered causes. Beyond that, we try to be radically generous at our spring renew offering and our fall harvest offering. And so our harvest offering is coming up and we want to be radically generous. Well, last week I was on a trip and I got back yesterday and checked my mail and I made a mistake. I opened an envelope that gave me a report of how my retirement savings have done the last five months. And it was depressing. In five months, I've lost more money than it took me five years to save. And fear set in. How can I be generous? Times are hard. I've got a future to think about. Who's going to take care of me when I can't preach anymore? And then I remembered the promise of God. Seek first the kingdom. And everything you need to flourish as a follower of Jesus, I will make sure you have. So I've got to make a decision in a month when it comes time for harvest offering. Am I going to live in the future tense and trust my God? Or am I going to let present fear decide who I become? You do too. We have to decide, am I going to frame my life around the promise of God? Abraham lived in the future tense, and it impacted future generations. The writer says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. So what do you do? You frame your life around God's promise. And next, you name your identity as God's heir. You see, Isaac and Jacob were patriarchs and they were princes, but they never forgot that they were also pilgrims. And by blessing their boys, they were calling them to frame their lives around the promises of God, just like their father and their grandfather had done. They were reminding their boys that they were part of a bigger story. And you cannot know what story to join if you don't know what people you belong to. And that's what makes Jacob's blessing especially significant. He blessed Joseph's sons. Why is that a big deal? Now, remember, Joseph has spent all his adult life in Egypt. He was sent down to Egypt as a teenager into slavery. He married an Egyptian woman. He's got two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they are half Egyptian. 
And Jacob made a point before he died to call for those two boys because he wanted them to know they might be half Egyptian, but they are full heirs of the promise God made to Abraham. So listen to how this old man blesses his grandsons. Genesis 48. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of his old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. And then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they increase greatly on the earth. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim. And Manasseh, I want you to imagine how those boys felt that day. Their grandfather takes them and puts them in his lap and he hugs them and he kisses them and he prays over them. God bless these boys. May they wear the name and own the promise you made to Abraham. May generations not yet born want to become like these two boys. You see, people that live in the future tense have to know who they are. They have to know that they're heirs of God. They have to know who their citizenship is really aligned with. I love today that we're celebrating our goal to raise 25 asylum seekers for people, uh, 25 advocates for asylum seekers coming to our country. Do you know? 70% of the immigrants coming to our country are believers in Jesus. And now we have different languages and cultures and nationalities and heritages. But when we advocate for these asylum seekers, you know what we learn? We have something that transcends all the things that make us different. We're citizens of the same kingdom of God. That's our primary identity. Jacob's last act was to remind his family of their first priority. So he passed on his faith, even as he's passing on. And their final memory of their father and grandfather was leaning on his staff, worshiping God. Now, you will remember that. It reminds me of a story I read several years ago. A pastor returned to guest speak at a church where he had served earlier as a youth pastor. He met a young woman that had been in his youth group, now an adult, and asked about her father. And she said, well, my dad passed on. And she told him this story. She, her sister and brother were with their dad Literally in the last hour of his life around his bed, he had had a stroke a few days before he couldn't talk. He was motioning to the bathroom, making a gesture like holding a cup. They thought he wants a drink of water. 
So the brother went, got a drink of water, held it to the father's mouth. He refused. He pointed to the boy. Dad wants me to take a drink of water. So he took a drink of water. And then the dad started pointing to the sister. And it dawned on him. Their father was serving communion. Their father's last act was to remind the next generation who they were, what story they were a part of, what kingdom they belonged to. People who are sure of their identity as God's heirs live very well. They die well too. And that leads us to Joseph. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. How do you live in the future tense? You frame your life around the promises of God. You name your identity as God's heir and you proclaim your confidence in God's faithfulness. And that's what Joseph did. And it's interesting to me, the Hebrew writer had such a rich library of stories about Joseph he could have spoke about. How as a young man, he had dreams and visions from God about his family. How he was sold into slavery, but did not turn his back in bitterness upon God. How he was seduced by a powerful woman and said no and protected his purity, even though it put him in prison. That even in prison, he stayed faithful to his God and became an interpreter of dreams. And he wound up being a prince of Egypt. What a story. You can make a movie about that. But out of all that, you know what he chose? He chose by faith, Joseph, when he was about to die, told his brothers, don't bury me here, bury me there. Now he said, that's not a very big deal. That is a huge deal. They had taken the boy out of Canaan, but they had not taken Canaan out of the boy. And after all these years, Joseph was still a Hebrew at heart and he cared more about God's promise than Egypt's prestige. Think of what the kind of funeral he could have been, he could have had. He would have been on the TV for days. They would have built a pyramid for him. Joseph said, no, just put my bones in a box and give the box to my brothers. Now I'm sure they embalmed him like an Egyptian but his final instructions were a stunning rebuke to Egypt. His faith was worth remembering because Joseph still remembered. It said he spoke about the Exodus. The Hebrew word literally means he remembered. He remembered something that hasn't even happened yet. He could remember prophetically because of a promise that had been remembered consistently. Go back to Genesis 15. The Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated there, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And Abraham told Isaac, and Isaac told Jacob, and Jacob told his sons, and Joseph told 
his brothers, remember what God said. Our future is Exodus. We're going back where we belong. And for centuries, the coffin of Joseph preached a sermon calling on the Hebrew people to live in the future tense and proclaim confidence in the faithfulness of God. I want you to think all those hundreds of years while they are doing back-breaking labor as slaves, what kept them going? Perhaps one thing that helped was a sight of a coffin. A coffin that preached a sermon. The sight of his bones kept the dream alive for future generations in spite of all their adversity. Someday we will exodus. I think Joseph filled more people with hope after he died than he did while he lived. Because a faith worth remembering clings to the promise of a promised land. Faith is confidence in what you hope for. I've mentioned before in college, I lived in an apartment with four guys and one of my roommates was Max Licato. Now today, he's maybe the world's most famous Christian author. Back then, he was just Max. After college, he went off to Miami for an internship to prepare to go to Brazil to be a missionary. I stayed in Abilene. and I was preaching for a church. I got a call about a year or two later from Max. One of our roommates, a man named Tim, died in a car wreck. Now, in college, you might have a fleeting thought that someday I might go to the funeral of somebody I knew in college. You don't think it'll be when you're 23. And so Max and I drove to Dallas to go to Tim's funeral. Two weeks later, Max wrote me a letter. There were no texts and emails back then. Max has written many great books. I've read most of them. But of all the things he's ever written, nothing has personally inspired me more than the way he signed that letter. Rick. Keep your eyes on heaven. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. And hope has to be based on a foundation nothing in the future can destroy. Let me say that again. You can't live without hope. But if your hope is in something that can be destroyed by the future, by a pandemic, by a job loss, by cancer, by a stock market downturn, if your hope is in something the future can destroy, you don't have hope, you just have a weak wish. My hope is grounded in something the future can't touch. My hope in what God is going to do is grounded in what God has already done. 1 Peter 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. My hope has a why. Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And Jesus Christ is coming back again. And so hope in Exodus is the genesis of my faith. And I'm reminded that I'm headed to a promised land, not by a box full of bones, but by a tomb that is completely empty. 
My hope is real. Even though it's not fully realized, I'm having to live in the future tense. And right now, just like the Hebrew people at slavery, life can be really, really tough. But I remember the promise. Paul put it like this in Romans 8. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so we finish strong because we remember our story is not yet finished. We're living now because we know then is coming. So I close with this story. In 2009, a young college football player finished his career at the University of Florida. It might be the greatest college football career ever. His name was Tim Tebow. As a freshman, he quarterbacked his team to the national championship. As a sophomore, he won the Heisman Trophy as the nation's best college football player. As a junior, he led his team to a second national championship. As a senior, he won every game except the last one. So after the season, ESPN and Home Depot have an award ceremony for college football. Tim Tebow was up for six awards. So he goes to Orlando for the event, and the night before there's a banquet, and he's sitting down. Someone taps him on the shoulder and says, there's someone that really wants to meet you, Mr. Tebow. He said, okay. So he goes out to the foyer area, and he meets a young woman named Kelly Fonnen. She was from Virginia. She was a teenager. And Kelly was battling brain cancer. She desperately wanted to meet her hero. And so her family drove from Virginia to Florida on the chance that that could happen. And Tim Tebow learned her story. and did a rather remarkable thing. He said, Kelly, I don't have a date tomorrow night. Would you be my date? Let me show you this picture. They're walking into the ceremony together. And one reason her arm is around his is because she needed help just to walk. And they're sitting down at the front of the auditorium and He's up for six awards, right? Well, he lost the first award. He didn't win the second one. He didn't win the third one. He didn't win the fourth one. And I heard him say on a podcast, he started chapping me. I was a pretty good college football player. I should win something. He was winning nothing. And then he felt a tap on his shoulder. It was his mother sitting behind him. And she leaned forward and she whispered, Timmy, which is what she still calls him, Timmy. You have already won tonight. You just don't get the reward until heaven. And it brought everything back into perspective. And he realized in that moment, his greatest win that night was to be beside someone God loved that he could bless. You let then impact now. So, why are we still talking about some people? Why is their faith story still living on? Because they had a living hope. You can too. Bow your head. I want you to do something. Think about something right now in your life that's pretty hard that you're dealing with. We all have our stuff. Think of something that's kind of hard you're dealing with right now. 
And then just for a moment, reflect on this thought. How does what I believe about what God is going to do in the future affect the way I think about what I'm going through right now? Meditate on that for just a moment. So God, life can really be hard. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said, in this world, you'll have trouble. But we don't want the present and the struggle to decide and define us. We want the future and the coming glory to define us. So help us live in the future tense. Help us to be people that Walk in the direction of the promise. We pray that our children and our grandchildren and even great, great, great grandchildren will hear the story that we live by faith. We pray this for Jesus' glory. Amen.